HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Blueprint, the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. For more information, visit blueprint.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. It's a beautiful Monday in Brooklyn, and I'm your host, Kathy Arway. And, you know, sometimes, you know, this show is all about food books. Um, sometimes I'll flip through a cookbook um, at the store. I'll get a new one in the mail, and uh, I'll look at the pictures and the recipes, and I think, you know, this this looks good, but I've seen it before. Or, you know, oh, yeah, I know all about that dish. Uh, yeah, that looks like something similar I've had recently. Um, but I am really delighted because this book I'm holding right now is called The New Persian K- Kitchen by Louisa Shafia. And I flip through it and I'm just blown away by things I've never thought of before, heard of, seen, and they're all really stunning. And that that really excites me. So Louisa, I know she's on the line right now. Are you there? Yep, I'm here. Hi, Kathy. Hi. So glad to have you. So fun to be on with you. Yeah, so this is your second cookbook. Congrats. Thanks. Um, so it's all about Persian food. Um, I want to get into why it's the new Persian kitchen, um, but just to kind of uh, briefly go over, um, I'd like to read a little bit from your intro. Um, you say, obscured for years by a veil of political animosity, Persian food is a global treasure waiting to be discovered, poised between East and West. Iran boasts a remarkable history that stretches back at least three millennia, crisscrossed for centuries by intercontinental traders, and at one time extending from North Africa to the Hindu Kush, the Persian Empire was subjugated by both neighboring countries and distant rivals. And uh, these include influences um, in cuisine from the Greeks, Romans, Arabs, Mongols, Turks, Africans, Indians, Chinese, and even Britons and the French. Um, Yet while embracing new flavors, Persian food has retained its startlingly unique fundamental character. That sounds like quite a journey for a Persian food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot in there. But, 
It's true. There's, yeah. There are ingredients that Iranians have been using literally for thousands of years, like walnuts, mm. pomegranate molasses, saffron. There were actually tablets, ancient tablets, found at the former uh, ritual capital of Iran called Persepolis, Mm-hmm. dating from, I believe, about 2,500 years ago, and it showed some of the regular foodstuffs that people mm-hmm. used. Okay. And all of those things were, were on there. Wow. And those are all still used today, which I think is really interesting. But between then and now, there have been so many different influences in Iran, partly because of its position in the middle of the Silk Road, so mm-hmm. between Europe and the Far East, and then partly because of the politics of the world where different forces have come in to conquer that area. Different and religions and so forth. Exactly, yes. yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Um, and I know your your father is is Persian. Um, and have, have you been to Persia? I know you grew up in Philly. so Exactly. Uh, East Coast. Philly to Persia. <laughs> a little bit of a trip. But, um, but you grew up with this food as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. I did. Um well, first of all, I have never been to Iran. Mm-hmm. I am actually working on that now. Awesome. Cool. It's uh, it's a bit of a project because as someone with a parent from Iran, I have to travel as an Iranian citizen. And it really? just takes a lot of paperwork and um, wow. a lot of bu- wading through bureaucratic circles. So I'm in the process, so fingers crossed that will happen sometime soon. But... Yes, I did grow up eating this food in Philly, even though my dad was the only person there from (laughs) his family, and we really didn't know very many other Iranians there. But my mom really wanted to make my dad's favorite food from his homeland. So she learned a lot of these dishes, like sesenjun, the stew made from pomegranate walnut sauce. Uh, that sounds great. June, yeah, the eggplant and tomato stew. So I had this food, but it wasn't the only thing we ate growing mm-hmm. up. It was just a wonderful little highlight here and there. And I, I see the book is um, really focused on your style, which is um, you, you also wrote a book called Lucid Food, which is really um, just like fresh, healthy, and with an abundance of seasonal local ingredients as the main focus. So this book is... I can definitely see that influence um, with um, with the food that is very traditional at the same time. Um, so w- was that sort of the goal of the new Persian kitchen, um, the meaning? Yeah, you've basically hit it right on the spot. I My idea with the new Persian kitchen... Let me just kitchen... do this interview with myself then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know well, Lisa, you're great, but yeah. Okay, uh, I see you. You're brilliant. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, I wanted to sort of make Persian food the way that I like to cook, which mm-hmm. is pretty much fresh and healthy and seasonal. And the thing is, is it really wasn't that much of a stretch. Persian food at its essence is really all about fresh produce. There's fruit in almost every dish, you know, pomegranate, walnut sauce, things like that. And... um it was really sort of just a matter of taking Persian food back to its roots. It's right. a very seasonal cuisine. I mean, like and most whole, countries, whole, it's everything is, you know, you eat what's in season and you preserve things so you have right. them throughout the year. So they love ingredients like rhubarb and 
sour cherries and eggplants and tomatoes and many, many things that we have here mm-hmm. in season that we also love. And and I love all the whole grains in it, too. I mean, we all know we've been hearing we should eat more whole grains, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then we eat this big, you know, sandwich of you name it, ethnic thing, like shawarma inside it. And you're like, okay, that's uh, a <laughs> that's thing. But um, your use of it is really, um, like, there's barley, there's quinoa, um, all the stuff that we know we should be eating more of um, that is just so beautifully presented in so many dishes. Like, there's this barley stew with lamb and rhubarb that looks really yummy. Um, and a lot of pilafs, too. Is that pretty typical of Iranian cooking? Well, they really, the main grain that they use there is rice, mm-hmm. fine grain, white rice. And I believe I've seen some millet here and there, but it's really, you know, I brought in something totally different mm-hmm. with quinoa and brown rice and all that stuff. But, okay. you know, that's how I like to eat. And Persian rice is such a big part of the cuisine it's just kind of this blank palette and you cook it with herbs and beans and fruits and things like rose petals and i thought well there's no reason you can't make right. those same beautiful rice dishes with whole grains and especially the persian specialty called tadig which hmm. you may have heard of it's the crunchy rice on the bottom of the rice pot and it's oh, yeah. the highlight of any persian meal and you can make like it with sokarat. You call it in uh, Italian, I guess, sokarat? I don't know. I've seen it in Dominican cuisine and, and in Chinese cuisine, but I don't know what it's called. Yeah. But many crispy. cultures share a love of crispy fried right. rice. Like the Korean rice bowl, too. You just want that good stuff on the bottom of the clay pot. Exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at the front cover, and it looks like there's that long grain, skinny rice that you described um, uh, with saffron. Is that on it? Like, yes, oh, that is that beautiful great. orange color. Yeah. So um, I love how you use like these, you know, kind of familiar, um, delicious seasonal dishes like the s- corn soup. And it has a beautiful twist like the saffron corn soup. So simple. But it looks really yummy. And I, it looks like I could easily do that, too. Um, what else do we have here? What's a good one for like right now? So pretty much midsummer, pretty hot. Do you have any, like, go-to recommendations for an easy, I don't know, entertaining? Sure. Oh, my gosh, there's lots. Um, Well, one thing that I really like for right now is um, the cold pistachio soup with mint and leeks. Oh, my gosh, yum. Um, Page 41, there's no picture of it, but it's basically a beautiful bright green soup. And you could eat it warm, but it's really refreshing cold, and it's, just leeks and pistachios sautéed, you know, until tender, and then you blend in some bright green mint right at the end and let it chill, and then right before serving, you mix in lemon juice, so it's really refreshing but, but filling at the same time, and you that can be all great. fancy and serve it in, you know, little shot glasses <laughs> for a cocktail wow. party. That sounds really fun. It's like a, instead of like a chilled, I don't know, pea or some, some sort of green soup, you could surprise someone with the, the pistachio creaminess. Um, exactly. It's like my take on uh, vichyssoise, the cold oh, potato okay. soup. That sounds good. I don't know what that would taste like, but I love pistachio. So, um, so what, was it difficult? Because this is quite different from your last cookbook. Um, there's a lot of traditional Persian food involved. Did you have to extensively you know, research, um, go back to your dad and <laughs> try to track down some of his family recipes? Or was it fun? Like, what, Tell me a little bit about the process for that. 
Yes, it was a big process. And it really started because in my first cookbook, I had really three Persian recipes. Mm -hmm. But I had so much fun writing those and testing those and, you know, getting research from family members and other Iranians about those recipes that Mm. that's how I decided to write this whole cookbook. But so um, then once I started, I really had this whole project ahead of me of discovering all the different dishes of Persian cuisine because, as I said, I grew up tasting a few, Mm -hmm. but I really didn't know the whole range. So, um, you know, I tried to go to Iran. That was... (laughs) Oh, no. That was the ideal, was I was going to research all these recipes in Iran, but I found out pretty quickly that was not going to happen. You know, it was going to take, like, at least two years for me to get there. So I was very sad for a week, and then someone said, why don't you go to Los Angeles? Because that's where there is the biggest Iranian Ah. expat community outside of Iran, and I have a bunch of extended family members there, so... I thought, you know what, that's great, and I won't have to wear a head covering like I would in Iran. (laughs) And um, so I I went out to L.A., and I moved there for a little while, and I went to lots of family gatherings, so I got to see what were everyone's favorite dishes. And then I got in the kitchen with some of my relatives, and they painstakingly showed me, you know, step by step, this is how you make this rice dish, this is how you make this dessert. Wow. That yeah. is so fun. Was it there was any, amazing. Like, what was the biggest surprise? Um, it could be, I don't know, just a technique or a dish or something that that really knocked your socks off? Um, well, one fun thing that I discovered was that my cousin Mahin showed me how to make rice with fava beans and dill, mm. bakali polo, which I probably just butchered, but that's <laughs> how you say it in Farsi. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, but it's got all this fresh dill in it, and I've always sort of dreaded working with fresh dill because I thought you had to pull every tiny piece of dill oh. off of the thick stems. Yeah. And she just took this huge bunch of dill and basically minced the whole thing, including the stems, into just really, really small bits and threw the whole thing into the pot. Oh, wow. And I thought, that is wonderful. <laughs> now I will not dread working with dill anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good Good thing to know. There's some herbs you can you can definitely not do that with like mint or something. But uh, that sounds great. I'll have to do that with my next big clutch of dill that I get from my CSA. Yeah, try it. It works. Cool. So um, let's talk more Persian food and your own writing and upcoming events, which I know you have some of. Um, right after a quick little musical interlude. <laughs> You're listening to It Ain't Hard to Tell by the California Honey Drops on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more Eat Your Words. Please don't say you love me when you do how you do. Please don't say you care. Girl, I know you've been untrue. Well, it ain't hard to tell. You've been seeing somebody new. So please don't kiss and hug me the way he wants you to. I said the way he wants you to.
Blueprint is the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. Designed to purify and detoxify, Blueprint Cleanse is made from the freshest 100% raw and USDA certified organic ingredients, cold pressed to retain nutrients and flavor. Blueprint also offers a line of organic juices, cold pressed and raw, in a variety of fruit and vegetable combinations and available in individual bottles. Blueprint Cleanse is available at Whole Foods Market and many other retailers across the U.S. To learn more about their line of organic cleanses, juices, and other products, visit them today at Blueprint.com or call them at 866-774-6831. That's 866-774-6831. Work hard, play hard, cleanse, repeat. All right, we're back chatting with Louisa Shafia. She just published the new Persian cookbook with 10... 10 Speed Press this year, um, and she's on the line right now from New York. Hey, Kathy. Hi. So um, just to go over again, like the new Persian cookbook, um, I'm not too familiar with what other kind of literature there is on Persian food out there. Were, were there some things that um, uh, you, would you, you drew some inspirations from? Are there just like a whole lot of Persian cookbooks that have a totally different slant to them? Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. which is... There are a lot of Persian cookbooks out there. Well, not a ton. I mean, mm-hmm. my gosh, compared to, say, something like Chinese Italian, or Indian yeah. food, there's a small amount. But mm-hmm. there's definitely um, sort of a canon, if you will, of cookbooks that have traditional Persian recipes in them. So the, the recipes that people have been making, you know, in many cases for hundreds of years, they're to pass down in people's families. And there are a lot of books that have lovingly reproduced those recipes so you can understand them, you can make this ancient food in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like, well, that kind of gives me the freedom to riff on all mm-hmm. this stuff. Okay, cool. So that's that's how I got to the new Persian kitchen. So there's a bunch of great books out there um, which I can recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorites is called Persian Cuisine by a guy named M.R. Ghanun Parvar, (laughs) who's actually a professor at uh, University of Texas in Austin, but he is passionate about preserving the culture, and so he made this cookbook that is uh, all just recipes and photos of every recipe. It's super helpful. Oh my gosh, cool. So I'm, I'm really glad you're doing this interview now instead of me, because I would be butchering these words a lot. Worse. Yeah, I um, said I can stand to do them a little bit better, but I'm trying. No, no, <laughs> no. Um, uh, so I know that your last cookbook also was vegetarian, lucid food. Um, but this there one, there were a few uh, fish and chicken oh, they recipes were. in there. Okay, yeah. never mind. But mostly veg. Yeah, and a lot of your classes that you teach are very high, heavily veggie based. But Persian Kitchen, uh, I see some yummy-looking skewers on the front cover. It looks like lamb kebabs or something. Um, and there's some meat sprinkled throughout. Was, was, there, um, was, that, um, was there any debate over whether to try to do it vegetarian? Because I know it's sort of a vegetarian-friendly cuisine. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought about it a lot because I'm someone that pretty much eats vegetarian most days. I mean, often I'm vegan, mm-hmm. and a lot of my cooking history has been at vegan restaurants, although I do eat everything. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I thought, well, to be true to Persian cuisine, I really do have to include some meat, especially lamb, which is what you'll see in most Persian recipes. And then there's quite a bit of chicken and fish as well. So I thought, well, I'll include those, but I'll give a vegetarian option for anyone that wants to do these same recipes meat-free, because as you said, it's it's really all about the flavors and yeah. the accompanying ingredients. The meat isn't really that Important. big of a deal in Persian cooking. Traditionally, the meat has always been used for flavoring, and the emphasis is on the other things, like, you know, if it's a stew of, say, butternut squash and pomegranate molasses or quince and, you know, rhubarb, the, the emphasis is really on the fresh produce. Right, right. So uh, speaking of fresh produce, you have a lovely little insert about how to, uh, I don't know, take apart a whole pomegranate. Uh, yeah. And I've seen the most ridiculous tips sometimes for this, like banging it on like a surface. Um, hopefully that, that'll shake out the seeds, but uh, I think that would crush them. And then, you know, some people like to really just try to peel as hard as they can. Um, but it looks like... Or do you want to go over, like, how, how do we do this best? Sure. Well, I think the first thing is, look, you do have to put a little bit of extra work into getting the fruit out of a yeah, pomegranate. They're not just going to fall It's not like eating out. an apple. So yeah. <laughs> we're all so about, you know, the fastest, easiest way to do things. And these just take a little work. <laughs> That's the truth of it. But there are easy ways to do it. And um, I guess my two favorite ways are, one, are to cut around the pomegranate, make shallow seams in it, then pull the two halves apart so mm-hmm. you're not really cutting into the seeds. You're just cutting into the skin to separate mm-hmm. the two halves. Then you hold it upside down in your hand so the seeds are against your palm, and you basically just whack it over a bowl with a heavy spoon, and you you know, you know, try to avoid whacking yourself, which is pretty <laughs> easy. <laughs> and the, and the seeds juice. just fall out. What's that? And getting splattered with, like, a lot of staining red juice. Yeah. Well, it's, it's probably going to happen, happen anyway. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just, exactly. just have fun. Lick yeah. it up. <laughs> um, and mm. then the other way is the way that my cousin showed me. And um, like many Iranians, he's an engineer, and he's figured out, you know, the most precise and effort-free way to, to open a pomegranate. And his way is to peel around the outside with a knife and remove the skin and then score that fruit that's still inside and hmm. break it open into segments that look like basically like orange citrus, segments. Yeah. So you put those segments on a platter and then the work of taking the seeds out is left up to everyone else ah, that you're serving, like- not just the cook. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Let Provide everybody else pick around at it. Um, so pomegranate molasses, too. That, that, that was one of the ingredients that um, you said really <clears throat> goes back um, in Persian cooking. What, how come I don't have this anywhere? <laughs> like, I've never heard of it. <laughs> what, yeah. Why? Well, um, well, so pomegranates are native to Iran. So, oh. you know, from the beginning, they've been juicing them and then preserving them, which pomegranate molasses is basically a preserve. Okay. Because you just, you juice the pomegranates and then you cook down that juice okay. and it makes this thick syrup, thick syrup and then, you know, you can jar it and can it. Ah. Can so you do that yourself? Can you you absolutely that? could do huh. it yourself. It's it's so easily available these days. I mean, I've seen it at Whole Foods. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. 
so, you know, you don't have to, but if you want to get really authentic mm-hmm. and uh, to get in touch Buy with your Persian great-grandmother, yeah. <laughs> you could definitely cook down the juice. And I imagine that would have like a, a you know, obviously a subtle sweetness, but um, a lot of that tanniny flavor that's in that thick juice of that pomegranate. Yes, it can be quite tart. And depending on what brand you get, there will be sugar added or not. And I prefer to get the kind without sugar added. So if I want to sweeten it, I can, you know, sweeten it as much as I want to mm-hmm. and with whatever sweetener I like. But it's definitely super tart. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of the favorite ingredients of northern Iranian cooking up near the Caspian Sea, up near Russia where people like things really, really tart. And that's where you get oh. a dish like fesenjun, which is pomegranate, walnut sauce, and traditionally made with wild duck, but these Ooh. days most people make it with chicken. Ooh, that sounds yeah. good. It's there's, kind of amazing. <laughs> there's definitely a distinct like combination of savory and sweet throughout these recipes. Because um, I, to- I normally, when I think of molasses, I think of baking, you know, cookies and banana bread or whatever um but molasses the way it's the pomegranate molasses is used here is through a lot of savory preparations right like stews and what else yeah in stews you can use it in drinks it's on kebab oh Um, it's in the marinade basically that same marinade of ground walnuts and pomegranate molasses is you know put with lamb kebab and you'll really find that throughout persian cooking because there is such a love of all these gifts from the garden because Iran is a place that figured out thousands of years ago how to irrigate vast desert areas with melted snow water. So a sort of iconic image from ancient Iran is this image of the lush garden in the middle of the desert where you could grow, you know, peaches and apples and grapes and walnuts and figs. In the and desert. So you just find those things. They're they're so beloved that they're not limited to dessert the mm-hmm. way that they are here. I see. You know, as as you mentioned, there's the rhubarb and lamb stew. There's a wonderful stew of quince and lamb, and um, grape essence, which is you know juiced unripe grapes, is oh. used everywhere for seasoning. I didn't put that in the book because it's a very hard ingredient to find here. But mm-hmm. yeah, you okay. see fruits all over. Um. I love the uh, the rhubarb recipe because I have rhubarbs I don't know what to do with yet. Um, but also, uh, you were saying about, uh, what was that ingredient? Oh, yeah, roses. What's yeah. the deal with roses? Aren't <laughs> they supposed to be just looked at? <laughs> yeah, well, that to me is one of the things that really drew me in about Persian cooking. It's mm-hmm. just so, the food is like fairy tale food. You know, they perfume. eat flowers. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> Apparently, Iranians were the first people to really cultivate roses thousands of years ago and put them in the garden. And they not only are they beautiful to look at, but they actually have a great taste and they have a lot of culinary uses. So there's rose water, which is in virtually every Persian dessert. And that's just an infusion with like dried rose leaves, like tea or something? Um, you know, I've never made it from yeah. scratch, but it's just basically a tincture, a tincture right. of roses. Okay. Yeah, and it should cool. really 
just be roses and water. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, the kind that you can get for cosmetic things, but you definitely want to get the culinary kind. So, yeah, yeah. You know, cool. for anyone looking for it, definitely get it at a grocery store. Yeah, I've seen um, that. And then also there are dried rose petals. Right. Which have a more of a savory flavor and are usually found in savory things, like they go into rice. Mm-hmm. They're uh, used as a garnish on yogurt dip. Oh, yum. I um, I put them in my cuckoo, which is a baked egg frittata, kind of like a, it's like the Persian equivalent of a tortilla espanola. Nice. And uh, I like to put sauteed whole um, rose petals in mine, along really? with ground walnuts Fresh. and Fresh in and ones? other seasonings. Fresh ones or uh, dried? I, I use dried. I okay. played around a little bit with using fresh um, rose petals, but they always had kind of a papery feel for oh, me. Yeah. So, so I've stuck with the dried ones. That's but true. if someone wants to dry their own rose petals, just mm-hmm. use whichever ones from your garden. Yeah. Smell good. Take a little taste. If they taste good to you, then they'll be... They'll be delicious dried. Wonderful. Yeah, I was going to say probably your own garden or something like that rather than the rose bunches that you get on Valentine's Day. That um, Exactly. Yeah. Stay away from those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Virtually all roses that you buy at a flower shop are going to have chemicals on them. So right. have to be homegrown. But that does sound like the perfect uh, romantic date meal <laughs> to have. <laughs> something with like a flutter of roses, rose petals on it. Definitely. Um, Super fun. I've been seeing a lot of roses around, too, lately, so um, maybe I'll have to steal a neighbor's. Just kidding. I won't do that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I won't tell anyone. Okay. So um, do you have any fun classes coming up? Yeah. Well, I have um, my next two classes are actually going to be in Seattle at a wonderful place called The Pantry at Delancey. Hmm. And you can get the details on my website, lucidfood.com. Cool. But I will have more New York events coming up. I'm definitely teaching two classes at the Natural Gourmet Institute this October. They're just not up on the schedule yet. But for anyone who wants to check, I'll be updating my event listings on my website. Awesome. Stay tuned. Yeah, lucidfood.com. All right. That looks like it's about all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us, Louisa. And I can't wait to make more of these Amazing recipes. Thanks, Kathy. Well, hopefully we'll get to cook together. Yeah, make a pretty feast. Perfect. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. Have a good week. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>